While confined here in the Birmingham City Jail, I came across your recent statement calling our present activities unwise and untimely. Seldom, if ever, do I pause to answer criticism of my work and ideas. If I sought to answer all of the criticisms that cross my desk, my secretaries would engage in little else in the course of the day, and I would have no time for constructive work. But since I feel that you are men of genuine goodwill and your criticisms are sincerely set forth, I would like to answer your statement in what I hope will be patient and reasonable terms. I think I should give the reason for my being in Birmingham, since you have been influenced by the argument of outsiders coming in. I have the honor of serving as president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, an organization operating in every southern state with headquarters in Atlanta, Georgia. We have 85 affiliate organizations all across the South, one being an Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. Whenever necessary and possible, we share staff, educational, and financial resources with our affiliates. And several months ago, our local affiliate here in Birmingham invited us to be on call to engage in a nonviolent direct action program if such were deemed necessary. We readily consented, and when the hour came, we lived up to our promise. So I am here along with several members of my staff because we were invited here. I am here because I have basic organizational ties here. Beyond this, I'm in Birmingham because injustice is here. Just as the 8th century prophets left their little villages and carried their thus saith the Lord far beyond the boundaries of their hometowns, and just as the Apostle Paul left his little village of Tarsus and carried the gospel of Jesus Christ to practically every hamlet and city of the Greco-Roman world, I too am compelled to carry the gospel of freedom beyond my particular hometown. Like Paul, I must constantly respond to the Macedonian call for aid. Moreover, I am cognizant of the interrelatedness of all communities and states. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. We are caught in an inescapable network of mutuality tied in a single garment of destiny. Whatever affects one directly affects all indirectly. And never again can we afford to live with the narrow provincial outsider agitator idea. Anyone who lives in the, inside the United States can never be considered an outsider. You deplore the demonstrations that are presently taking place in Birmingham. But I am sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the conditions that brought the demonstrations into being. I am sure that each of you would want to go beyond the superficial social analyst who looks merely at effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. I would not hesitate to say that it is unfortunate that so-called demonstrations are taking place in Birmingham at this time, but I would say in more emphatic terms that it is even more unfortunate that the white power structure of this city left the Negro community with no other alternative. The Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King wrote this letter, and this is just the beginning, on April 16th, 1963. He wrote it from a jail cell. A jail cell he found himself locked in because of a nonviolent demonstration he led against racism and racial segregation. 
In this, later, in this letter, he states that his issue is not with ignorant hate groups such as the KKK. He does not even care to address such ignorance. Rather, his issue was with what he calls moderate whites who were, who were more devoted to order than to justice. White people who would agree with the goal of Reverend King's campaigns. We shouldn't be segregated. There shouldn't be inequality. But wouldn't want anything to be done about it so as not to disrupt peace. But peace for whom? The Apostle Paul wrote a similar letter from inside a jail cell. He knew we didn't have long on this earth left and he wanted to make sure that the spread of the gospel and fight against the lies and tactics of the enemy such as racism. Winning the hearts of whole nations, he wanted to make sure that it wouldn't stop. His problem was not with unbelievers as Paul believed the Lord was powerful enough to win them over. His problem was not even with those who adamantly opposed the spread of the gospel for he knew that God was stronger than their force and tactics. His problem was with the many believers who had received the gospel. With the many people who knew the good news. Who knew a gospel of freedom but refused to do anything about it while a world and people were being persecuted, oppressed, and torn apart. Our series for the next few weeks is called Pass It On. Instructions that we receive from the Apostle Paul in his final letter to Timothy. So if you would, I would like to start our time together in the book of 2 Timothy you can find it towards the back of your Bible. I encourage you to use the table of contents if you don't know. But we're going to go to 2 Timothy. And for the next few weeks, we're going to go verse by verse. This morning, we tackle the first 18. Let's get after the first seven. Here we go. This letter is from Paul. Chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I've been sent out to tell others about the life he has promised through faith in Christ Jesus. I'm writing to you, Timothy, my dear son. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord give you grace, mercy, and peace. Timothy, I thank God for you. The God I serve with a clear conscience, just as my ancestors did. Night and day, I constantly remember you in my prayers. I long to see you again. For I remember your tears as we parted, and I will be filled with joy when we're together again. I remember your genuine faith, for you share the faith that first filled your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. This is why I remind you to fan into flames the spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. Verse 7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. So this, this is Paul's last letter. You can kind of tell he's in that zone, right? Like, you can kind of tell that he knows that this might be the last thing he ever gets out there. 
you can kind of tell that sitting in a jail cell, he knows that this might be his last communication, not only to the outside world, but to Timothy, who he is most proud of specifically. You can kind of tell. You can tell because of the repetition of memory-type language. He's like, man, I remember when we were together. I remember, I remember when I was first called by God. Jesus appeared to me specifically on a horse. He'd been resurrected and sitting comfortably in heaven for quite some time. Yet for some reason he saw fit to come to me specifically. Knock me off my horse, pun intended, and then go ahead and tell me that I was going to go be a minister. I remember when I first met you, Timothy. I remember what you were like so young. I remember getting to know the faith of your grandmother. And then your grandmother, who was the first one to receive this good news, she was the first one to accept the gospel. She then passed it on to your mother. And even though your father was not a man of faith, and that must have been hard for you because we all know how much we get from our dads. Even though that must have been hard for you and hard for your mother, your mother was faithful. Your mother was firm in her belief. She was strong in her faith and she passed it on to you. And now you, Timothy, you're strong in your faith as well. I can see it. I'm convinced of your faith, Timothy. I'm convinced of it. And as we'll get through in this letter, Timothy has weaknesses. Timidity being one of them, we'll get there in a second. Timothy has weaknesses, but there is no doubt what is explicitly clear and explicitly driven home is that there is no doubt that Timothy has strong faith. For this reason, Paul reminds Timothy that God has commissioned him. He says, let me remind you when we all laid hands on you, He explains to Timothy, you don't need a new gift. What you need is a rekindling of what you've already received. Paul tells Timothy to fan into flame the gift that God has given you. Operative word, has given, means it's already there. Fan into flame. What is already within you. You ever see somebody, you ever see somebody like when a fire's starting to die down? You ever see somebody do a few things like get down there, play with the kindling a little bit, just a tad, and then all of a sudden there's a flame again? You ever see that? That's how I learned that Sarah Shepner was cooler than her husband Dave. The Hunkas and Shepners were sitting around a fire one night. The fire's like getting real low, like about to die. It's just smoking. And you're like, oh, well, you know, this typically signals the end of the night, right? Sarah gets down on the ground, puts puts some pieces in different places. (laughs) Bam, fire. The night is just beginning. (laughs) Fan into flame what God has given you. Let me remind you, Timothy. That God has commissioned you for a very specific purpose. 
You are the way you are. You have such strong faith. You've been allowed to overcome the things that you have overcome because God has an incredible purpose for you. And you don't need to be afraid because what he has for you to do is not accomplished by an external operation that you coordinated, but is already done by an internal grace placed within you. Y'all didn't catch it. Let me say it another way. God has already given you the spirit you need to accomplish the ministry he is laying before you. If you hear nothing else I say this morning, I want you to hear that. It is nothing that your own efforts can do. God has already given you the spirit that you need. And so we need not have fear, timidity, worry. God has already given you the spirit that you need. And now comes the first of what is going to be many punches in the mouth that the Apostle Paul delivers. Metaphorically speaking. Paul says, Timothy, God didn't make you that way. God didn't make you timid. God didn't make you fearful. God did not commission you so you could look at what's before you and keep your feet right where they already were. God did not bring you through the things that you have been through so that you could be afraid. God did not allow faith to pass on from grandmother to mother and mother to you so that you could be afraid. Instead, Timothy, God gave you not that. God did give you a spirit of power, a spirit of love, a spirit of self-discipline, power. Not that, not that we're not talking about personality types here, right? I'm not disqualifying introverts. I'm not. The spirit of power is not that Timothy had to have a powerful and overbearing personality. It is that he had to have strength of character to be bold and have authority. The spirit of love, the spirit of love is absolutely vital to the Christian. Paul insinuates here and explicitly writes elsewhere that you could have all the gifts in the world. You could have all the knowledge in the world. But if you have not love for others, it means nothing. A spirit of self-discipline. Again, it's not about the effort that you give, but how you train yourself to live. It's not about what you're able to put out. It's about how you train yourself to live. Guys, we have received something so wonderful. I mean, I need somebody to agree with me. That what we have received is so wonderful. That what we have received is a message directly from the creator of all things. That recognizes the fallen nature of our own humanity and of those around us. He recognizes the brokenness and the oppression that exists within our systems. And yet in the midst of it all, he sends his son to sit with us. To live right next to us. To die sacrificially and get up so that he can be within us. And then invite us to where he is going. We have received this invitation 
that is a gospel of liberation. It's a gospel of freedom. It's a gospel of love. It's a gospel of truth. It's a gospel where not one being conquers all things, but, by through, but through those that he loves and created so dearly, wins in the end of the day. That is an incredibly beautiful story that we're willing to accept in movies, and yet, for some reason, the personal implications seem to get blocked. And the expectation that comes with this gospel, which is perhaps why we don't speak it, is because the expectation is to pass it on. The expectation is for all people who have received this invitation to pass it on. But we've become timid. We lack confidence. Timidity leads to lacking of confidence. Lacking of confidence can lead to shame. You become embarrassed. You hide a certain part of yourself for so long or you're afraid to speak up on a certain thing. You ultimately become fearful and shameful of what you actually think and feel. That's a scary, isolated, dangerous place to be. We've become timid. And yet, God has set off this spark that's kindling inside of us still. God saw us going in one direction and at some point we like felt something within us that has compelled us to go the opposite direction. And that thing is still there. I know you feel it. It's still there. You know it's there. You know what he's done. You know that you're different because of it. And what I mean to communicate is that it is absolutely imperative that we pass that on. As a church, the Lord has placed something life-changing around us. I don't know about you, but when I come here on Sunday mornings, I feel different. When I come here on Sunday mornings, the very presence of God meets me at the door at 8.30 in the morning. And he's like, hey, we're about to do something crazy today. I feel that way. What we need to guard against is becoming timid or secure in our group. I like the people that are here. I, I, I like the people that always sit in my row and the people that sit in front of me and behind me. The person behind me doesn't sing too loud. And the person in front of me, you know, claps on beat. And so I, I've, I've become comfortable with, with where I'm at in this sanctuary. I like what we have on Sundays. I feel fulfilled. But, but other people? No, I like the small thing. I like what's going on. We lack confidence because somebody, we're, deep down we're afraid that somebody will come in here and look at us like, what? Bro, this worship is long. Your pastor's weird. And what on earth is on that tray? Hey, those donuts though. But the rest of it. We're afraid to invite people in to that part of ourselves because we're afraid that they'll reject it. 
we're afraid that they won't see or feel what we see and feel, and so we just don't even bother to go there. But what the instruction we received is, is we need to fan what the Lord has given us. And if this has been a gift to you, is this is something that the Lord has given you to be a part of, then it is for you to fan that into flame so that all may see, so that all may be a part, so that more can come to know and have that kindling inside of them as well. This is nothing to be ashamed of. Let's keep moving. Verse 8. Verse 8. So, Paul writes, never be ashamed to tell others about our Lord. And you know what? While we're at it, don't be ashamed of me either. Even though I'm in prison, I'm in prison for him. With the strength God gives you, be ready to suffer with me for the sake of the good news. For God saved us and called us to holy life. He did this not because we deserved it. I don't have time today to tell us why we don't deserve it. But because that was his plan from before the beginning of time. To show us his grace through Christ Jesus. And now... He's made all of this plain to us by the appearing of Christ Jesus, our Savior, the hero of all of our stories. He broke the power of death and illuminated the way to life and immortality through the good news. And God chose me to be a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of this good news. And that, Timothy, that is why I am suffering here in prison. And I'm not ashamed of it because I know the one in whom I trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until the day of his return. Paul says to Timothy, don't you dare be embarrassed. Don't be embarrassed by the truth that you've received. Don't be embarrassed by all the implications of being a Christian. And you know what, Timothy? I'm handwriting this to you, and I'm almost dead, so don't you dare be embarrassed about me. You instead need to have a mindset shift where you are prepared to suffer. You are prepared to share in the same sufferings. Because, Timothy, the good news that you know is that the strength of God is stronger and bigger and greater and more triumphant than the strength of any suffering. God, after all, did break the power of death. Did see his son go down into the ground. Did see his son bleed out not expected to be heard from again. And after all, God did reach his almighty hand through his spirit and go ahead and grab his son up out of the grave and roll that rock on away and say, go get him. I mean, after all, he did do that. I don't know any financial instability or conflict that could possibly be stronger than what it must have took there. God broke open the path to eternal life, so of course he'll give us the strength to hold on to that no matter what, because that is what he wants, is for us to be able to hold on to that, is to invite all of us in. He wants to be with every one of us. 
then Paul reminds Timothy, that's why I'm in prison. Don't get it twisted. I'm not out here acting a fool, getting arrested for no reason. It's not like I'm just finding a Roman officer and like punching him in the face because he doesn't believe. That's aggressive. I might do that, but not right now. Paul's like, I'm in these chains because Roman officials want me to stop preaching. But the God that chose me out from the dirt and gave me sight wants me to preach. So let me preach. And you can put me in these chains, you can put me in this cell, and I'm cold as all get out because it's that time of year. But man, you ain't going to stop me from preaching. I'm suffering, but not ashamed to wear these chains because I know the one in whom I trust. I know he has allowed me to be here, but if he has allowed me to be here, then I know he'll take care of me. I think often the reason we don't share our faith is because we're afraid of the blowback, right? It's really the reason that a lot of us are afraid to share our opinions on anything, right? Like you can't, you can't like go on Facebook without like, you know, there being some type of blowback. You can't scroll, like I challenge you, not right now, but later. Scroll through your news feed longer than five seconds and let me and, and, and tell me that you didn't find some, some sort of conflict on your timeline. You can't do it anymore. We're afraid of what will come our way. We're afraid of being categorized. Oh, he clicked Christian on Facebook? That must mean that he thinks this, believes this, voted that way, did that way, and he probably hates this about me. I don't want to be categorized. We're afraid of what people may begin to say about us or who will just flat out walk away from us. We're afraid of the hate that some people may throw our way. And let's be real. I'm not just going through fake scenarios. I struggle with this. I struggle with this too. I will never forget recently. I was, I'll never forget the first time in a Friday morning SFO that my brother James, my wife, and myself spoke out on the Black Lives Matter movement. Because I didn't feel like people on our campus really understood it. And I didn't feel, I felt like people, white people in our in our uh, college, we're, we're a little too comfortable with these dead bodies adding up on the streets. And it wasn't about supporting for one side or the other, but it was about looking at the fact that bodies are adding up and there must be something done because ultimately God does not love dead bodies in the streets. And so something had to be done. And I remember two. Two angry non-agreeable statements that were directed at me. Later on, after the fact, one real, actually they were both passive aggressive, which is a pet peeve of mine, but we won't, we won't go there right now. I remember both of them. And I'm going to be real with you, that shook me to my core. I had never been the subject of, of, of such a thing. I had never been the subject of somebody's hate or misguidedness on that level. Like I've never been there before. And so it scared me to say a whole lot of other things. 
I didn't speak out on a lot of other things. Even though I'm a preacher, it's what I'm supposed to do, right? You're supposed to be mad at me. What I never remember about that, I recalled a couple weeks ago. I got a new phone. And I was going through the pictures and I used this new opportunity at a, phone, at a new phone to, to kind of purge things from like the old phone, right? You ever do that? You ever just like something gets too crowded and then all of a sudden you're like, you know what, it's not even worth like deleting stuff anymore. Just friggin' leave it and let it pile up. That's what I had done with my old phone. And so I was using this as an opportunity to purge and I'm going through pictures. And I found saved in my photos. Maybe this makes me arrogant. I don't know. But whatever. I'm just being real right now. I found saved in my own photos that screenshots somebody had sent to me of people's reactions on social media to what James and I had said that day. And they were positive. I remember one in particular said, it's days like today that I'm glad that Malone makes me go to 20 SFOs. Because if they did not, I would not have heard such a strong and convicting message today. One in particular said, my life and my views on this whole situation radically changed today. And Jesus, I'm sorry. And there were all these positive messages, positive screenshots that were sent to me that I had saved. But I don't remember those. I don't remember those. I remember the negative ones. All both of them. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? The reality is, when we're as bold about our faith as God expects us to be, the enemy is going to throw all kinds of things at us. After all, as one of my favorite professors says, and you've heard me say it before, you're not a threat to the kingdom sitting in your lawn chair eating Doritos. Right, I'll explain it to you later. God is going to see us go through all kinds of tough situations. But what we often don't take seriously enough is that God is in control. And if he has the power to pick up a dead man and put him next to him in heaven, then I'm sure he has the power to restore my confidence after somebody rips me to shreds. It's too great a loss, guys. It's too great a loss to let fear of what might happen stop us from, what do, from doing what we're called to do. That means somebody is losing out on an invitation. Somebody is missing out on community and family. Somebody isn't getting the invitation that changed your life and that changed mine. And we can't let that happen. We need to be ready. Quickly, let's finish this section. Picking up in verse 13. Hold on, Paul says, to the pattern of wholesome teaching you learn from me, a pattern shaped by the faith and love that you have in Christ Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives within us, carefully guard the precious truths that have been entrusted to you. As you know, everyone from the province of Asia has deserted me, even Phagellus and Hermogenes. May the Lord, however, show special kindness to Onesiphorus, my dude O, <laughs> and all his family, because he often visited and encouraged me. 
He was never ashamed of me because I was in change, chains. When he came to Rome, he searched everywhere until he found me. May the Lord show him special kindness on the day of Christ's return. And you know very well how helpful he was in Ephesus. Paul says, guard the teaching that you have received because you know it's the truth. I gave you a foundation. I gave you basic truths. And you know those to be truths. And the enemy is not going to stop until you don't believe those things anymore. He's not going to stop until he somehow perverts your perception of my own actions into you being ashamed of me. He's not going to stop until he twists words of truth that have been told to you and makes you believe that somehow this gospel is exclusive and not inclusive. He's not going to stop until you doubt every truthful, loving, powerful word you've ever heard. Don't take it from me, I've got examples. You know everybody on that continent over there left me. Let me get arrested for preaching and that's what they decided was too far. This can't be the gospel, this can't be the truth. God wouldn't lead somebody to get arrested. Somebody should have told Reverend King that. I don't know, he's not going to stop. And a lot of people are going to walk away. But he doesn't end on a sour note. He's like, let me remind you of my guy. Oh. <laughs> Said he was gracious to me. And when I found myself in chains, he embodied the gospel. He empathized with the prisoner. He empathized with me and my condition, and he encouraged me. And he came to visit me. He didn't only come to visit me. He left and went to a town that wasn't his and didn't stop walking and searching that town until he found me. Does that sound familiar to anyone? There's a whole ton of negative connotations to the term and idea of being a Christian. A whole bunch of them. Being one will almost guarantee that you face hardships. The implicit question in this section is what will you do when those things come up? Will you desert all that you have known to be true? Will you let that kindling, that spark that God set off inside of you, will you let that die down? Because it's just easier that way. Or will you choose to stand firm and embody the gospel? Will you be gracious? Will you show empathy? Will you give encouragement? And will you search everywhere for the lost so that they may be saved? My prayer for this church is that when it comes to living out our faith in every facet of this life and our world, the same can be said about us. As Reverend King said about the demonstrators in Birmingham. Talking about their sublime courage. Their willingness to suffer. And their amazing discipline in the midst of the most inhuman provocation. 